Welcome to the Pastured Pig Podcast, where we share the successes and challenges of raising pigs on pasture. We talk to producers all over the country, from small homesteads to large commercial pasture operations. Whether you're new to pastured pigs or have been raising hogs for decades, we hope you hear new ideas and new perspectives on pasturing hogs. Here's your host, Troy McClung. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Pastured Pig Podcast. Uh, Another great interview set up for us today. Uh, I'm going to dive right in. Anxious to introduce Jordan Green of J&L Green Farm in Virginia. And some of you guys may have, I'm sure several of you have already heard about Jordan. Jordan has some really good things going down on uh, his farm in Virginia. So welcome, Jordan. How are you today? Good, sir. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to Come in from outside. Uh, are you uh, getting the same weather that we're getting in West Virginia, where it's just been raining about uh, 180 days of the last month? <laughs> yes, I, I've forgotten what winter feels like and what uh, dry weather feels like. Uh, feeling very, very uh, tropical. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's been a little ridiculous for our uh, our region. You guys are Zone Six still, right? I believe so. Yeah, yeah. So you're you're dealing with the same stuff we're dealing with. It's just been a very mild winter, and that turns a lot of things into mud. I was watching a video earlier this morning, um, you, know, you with Justin Rhodes, and looking at your beautiful green pastures. And I'm like, oh, but that was I think that was in August when that was recorded. And uh, you've been right. what green? I, I barely remember what green looks like. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's uh, the long uh, kind of misery and uh, dreariness of winter, but. Uh... Hopefully, it'll be coming to a nice spring here soon. Indeed, yes, looking forward to it. All right, well, tell us a little bit about, if you don't mind, um, I, I know your your farm uh, is, is a polyculture. There's a lot of pastured stuff going on there. But if you don't mind, uh, as we focus on, uh, before we dive straight directly into the pig farming, let's talk about uh, uh, green farm in particular. What, what do you have going on there, kind of your setup, uh, size, how long you've been there? Sure. So my wife, Laura, and I started uh, J&L Green Farm in 2009, right after I left the Marine Corps. And we right now are managing about 200 acres um, here in Edinburgh, Virginia. Uh, 51 of it is open. The balance is wooded ground. And you know, really where we are different than a lot of um, quote-unquote modern farms is we are a direct-to-consumer enterprise, meaning everything that we do is oriented around bringing a product to the end customer or as close to that as we can as we can get it, adding as many different layers of, of value-added capture um, as possible, as opposed to just being a, a commodity farm producing a you know, single product for a single uh, sale point. Yeah. Um, so in, underneath that, there's a lot of uh, diversity in the community of you know, people who are doing uh, different certifications, whether it's organic or, um, you know, animal welfare or holistically managed or non-GMO verified or all these different things, I think, that are captured under that bigger notion of we are trying to be direct to retail, having that connection with the customers. And and that's been a priority for us from day one. Um, So we do, you know, a lot of different proteins. Um, Right now it is beef pork and poultry in the past we have done lamb but we transitioned away from that several years ago for a couple different reasons and uh yeah pigs are a pretty big piece of what we do uh with our farm yeah excellent all right 
Well, uh, you'd mentioned something there. I'd like to uh, camp out on just for a second. Uh, you'd mentioned a stint in the Marine Corps, and then I believe before that you had an apprenticeship at Polyface. So uh, tell us a little bit about each of those, and, and then maybe what what the two of those together, uh, how they gave you the experience you need to do what you're doing now. Yeah, so, you know, growing up, um, I always, I grew up in the outdoors. My parents were caretakers of a large lake uh, forest preserve in upstate New York as a child, so I was out in the woods building forts, you know, running chainsaws at probably uh, 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 too early an age to be safe, but (laughs) (laughs) fortunately, uh, I'm still here and in one piece. Uh, when we moved to Virginia in the 90s, one of my first jobs was working on a farm, and that was something I really enjoyed doing. It kind of hit all of the uh, wickets for things I enjoyed, but they were a commodity farm producing. Um, they, they raised broilers for eggs that would then be hatched into you know, the, the Cornish cross that would go into meat houses, and I knew that was not something I particularly enjoyed doing, so we were at the same time, becoming acquainted with Polyface, uh, it was right after Joel had written one of his first books. It was kind of like the mid-90s. And, you know, we went down and toured the farm, and we ended up home churching with the Southins for a while, so I got to know them and, you know, work with them on Sunday afternoons for chores and things. And so that kind of led into the opportunity for me to do um, an apprenticeship there in, uh, in 2001, 2002, um, you know, kind of corresponding with this was a desire to, um, you know, go out and, you know, see the world, kind of those, you know, things that young people dream about to have some kind of adventure. Um, And also a, uh, you know, kind of a a desire to really test myself and see, uh, you know, do you have what it takes? And, uh, you know, at the time, it seemed that there was no more ultimate test for a young man than to, you know, try to do the Marine Corps. Um, You know, this is pre- social media and YouTube and all that. So you couldn't just go find a bunch of videos on, Hey, what's the Marine Corps like? You kind of have to go experience it. Um, so those things were kind of happening at the same time. And, you know, the way it worked out is I was able to do the apprenticeship at Polyface first, worked on farms for a few years after that around the East coast, helping people start different farms. Um, so I really wasn't doing my own, but I was helping other people. And the opportunity came along in 2003 um, where some some policies shifted with DOD, which, you know, it's amazing how war conditions all of a sudden caused policy shifts mm. um, that allowed me to go into the Marine Corps as a homeschool graduate um, because previously the military considered homeschool graduates equivalent to high school dropouts, and so there were some issues with the type of contracts you get. Yeah. Um, so in 2003, uh, a buddy of mine said, hey, you, you want to go to the Marine Corps with me because I'm, you know, um, I'm going in, and you know, if you bring a buddy in, I get brownie points, basically. And uh, I was like, sure, you know what? It's something I've been wanting to do for several years. Um, you know, I feel like it's a, it's a worthy endeavor to undertake, and it's something that you do as a young man. You, know, you can farm when you're 40 and 50. I don't see anybody signing up for the Marine Corps when they're 40 or 50. So right. <laughs> if this is an I'm going to scratch, I better do it young. And, uh, yeah, so he and I went off in um, August of 2004 and, you know, did boot camp, and uh, that was an experience, and then went out to the fleet for, uh, you know, four years and change. And so, you know, I did a five-year contract with the Marine Corps. Um, I worked on F-18 fighter jets, which is quite unrelated to farming, but it was a good experience, and 
you know, certainly learn a lot about yourself, how to work in stressful environments, how to work with other people, um, really how to manage chaos. And, you know, those were some very good lessons that came back to the farm with Laura and I when we, we made the decision in 09 to get out and, you know, go actually do this farming thing. Yeah. So that five-year uh, contract, were you O'Connor's the entire time or? Um, I'm sorry, was I what? Were you O'Connor's out, outside of the continental United States or were you uh, in country the entire time? Oh, oh yeah. Uh, so I was stationed in South Carolina, but I did two deployments to East Asia. Gotcha. Um, yeah. While, while I was in, yeah. Cool. All right. Well, well, thank you for your service, of course. I appreciate that. That's uh, that's yeah, Marine Corps. Wow. Yeah, especially at that time, of, that time of uh, yeah, the early two thousands, there was a, there was a lot going on military list uh, uh, across right. the, across the nation, across the world. So. <laughs> Yeah, there are just a few things. Yeah, yeah. All right. So um, let's talk about your your farm acquisition because uh, you're in what I consider some of the most beautiful farmland in the world. And granted, I'm not a world traveler, but I just absolutely love the Shenandoah Valley, that part of Virginia. So how did you come about uh, the piece of land you're on, and and, and what were the obstacles there? Yeah. Uh, so you know, it, it really ties back to when uh, you know the first couple of years after we moved to Virginia and building relationships inside of the community. We were doing some a, a local farmer's market. I was selling some goat cheese and goat milk uh, very illegally, and I got shut down by the state eventually, but that's another discussion. <laughs> uh, and were, that's right. Yeah, I was bootlegging the, uh, the goat milk. Um, <laughs> Virginia has a reputation of, you know, liquids being bootlegged around. So, yeah, exactly. Well, uh, yeah, go with it. Raw milk is the new whiskey. Right. Um, but anyway, there was a, a couple that had a farm that we kind of knew. And while I was in the Marine Corps, they were letting me come back and cut some lumber on their property for a little furniture thing I had going on. And, um, you know, we started a conversation uh, a couple of years before I got out about they were looking for someone to come back and manage their farm and do something. And so they you know, gave us the opportunity to have a piece of land to start with. Um, and so that was the first place we operated on. From there, we branched out and leased a couple other uh, pieces of property. And over the course of the 10 years that we've been in business, we've kind of concentrated onto one bigger farm that's right next door to the first one that we had. And, you know, that's, uh, again, relationships with landowners is what opened that door um, that our, our current farm owner saw what we were doing on the neighbor's place and gradually let us start taking over pieces of his farm as he was retiring away from it and you know got to the point where we had the entirety of the farm and we were able to structure a lease that was you know beneficial for us and for him and had some kind of shared responsibility and shared risk that has worked out pretty well for the both of us, but you know, really, uh, if I had to say, what is the most important element of finding land and, and acquiring land outside of straight purchasing it is being involved in that farming community, building relationships with landowners, and then as you get started on a place, letting them see how you operate, um, you know, what your what your principles are, what your vision is, what the integrity of your business um, you know, is, and 
see what kind of opportunities present themselves. And so by having management systems for our animals that are very portable and adaptable to different pieces of property, it's not as complicated for us to move from one farm to another if we have to because everything is portable and mobile. And so we can just pack it up and move from point A to point B if, if necessary. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's huge. That's obviously that, that echoes the Salatin model. Um, yeah, obviously, but I really, really appreciate it. I think that's some great advice you're giving there. And I know there's so many people that, um, that I interact with that they feel that land ownership is really the only way to go. And that becomes a, an obvious economic barrier straight out of the gate. But I think it's, Absolutely. I think it's incredible when you look at, uh, and, and I know we're going to get into this a little bit more later in this discussion about your consulting services, but you have the experience in, in showing people that, you know, a, a, a mutual beneficial uh, relationship with a landowner and this type of farming operation where there's not hundreds of thousands of dollars invested in infrastructure, as far as permanent infrastructure goes, can really make right. for some great situations there that, that you could be you could be farming a piece of land until, you know, you're ready to hang it up for good and it never have to be in your ownership. Yeah, and I think it's something that will become more and more common uh, moving forward because the value of land is so detached from the production capability mm. of it that for, you know, for young people or, or pe- new people coming into uh, especially livestock, which is very land extensive, uh, the, the cost of land ownership just cannot be carried by a startup business um, or, you know, even a, a mid-sized farm if you are in an area that, that's close to where your market is. You know, if you're out in the middle of, of nowhere, you know, I know guys who are picking up acreage for, say, $2,000 an acre. Yeah. Um, you know, that might be a different story, but if you are in, you know, prime farmland, which is eight, ten, twelve, twenty thousand $20,000 an acre, um, I, I think we'll see a lot more of this uh, partnership between folks who are looking to park capital into property for financial reasons or that they've had the farm in the family since 1800 um, as a you know, land-owning uh, entity. And then the operational side of what the farmer brings to the table, having a you know, leaseholding arrangement where using light and mobile infrastructure, we can operate with a light footprint on a piece of property. And, you know, it, it ends up being that, you know, it's not working out. It's not a devastating, uh, you know, business decision to have to move the, the farm somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's a great model. Love it. And I think uh, I, uh, I heard a stat or saw a stat somewhere that here in the next 10, 20 years, there's going to be what, 50% of agricultural assets are going to change hands simply because uh, the average farmer is in his 60s right now. And uh, so there, there's going to be a lot of change that's going to have to happen in the next two decades when it comes to how we how we manage agriculture land. Yeah, I've heard similar numbers. Okay, well, uh, let's let's dive into your, your pig setup in particular. Uh, how would you summarize your pig operation there at your farm? Um, I would say we are a pasture-based farrow-to-finish um, operation. Um, you know, we we do sell a lot of piglets to other farms. We do finish out uh, a lot for ourselves, and you know, manage a lot of sows. But we're we're trying to orient as much of the production model as we can 
on integrating the pig into a broader, kind of more holistic uh, management package of multi-speciation, um, you know, multi-types of forage and even trees, and using the pigs as a, as a tool to help manage the ground as opposed to just being a, a destructive force that's occupying a, a certain numbers of acres on the farm. You know, it's interesting you say that because there's, um, yeah, we're 30, I think you're like my 39th interview for this podcast, and we've talked to some other operations that are that are close to your size, uh, but they're monoculture uh, when it comes to uh, you know, protein. So from your perspective, and again, this doesn't necessarily mean that one's right and one's wrong, but from your perspective, how would your operation, would it function as well or would there be issues if you were just simply pigs on your farm? On your farm? I think it would function the same, um, but we would lose out on the benefits that we can achieve for other species. Mm. What's, uh, and what I mean by that is pigs are a unique animal in that they are a tilling animal. <laughs> you know, as, as we all know in the pig space and is often a problem, um, these animals, pigs love to till up the ground and stir dirt. Yeah. Um, the, the problem arises when they are allowed to continually do that on the same piece of ground for too long a period of time, and it causes erosion and compaction and, you know, the moonscape that a lot of times that we'll see. Yeah, exactly. So the, the idea and the concept that we've worked with is can we, as the, the managers of the operation, orient our management practices in such a way to facilitate uh, the pig's movement and stocking density on the ground in a way that becomes an asset to the broader operation instead of just being a you know ground-destroying liability. And if we can change the mindset that we have with managing the pigs, all of a sudden we can start achieving a lot of really cool results with this animal because it is a tilling animal as opposed to a grazing animal or a scratching animal like an herbivore. Or a chicken and using the pigs we can uh, eliminate a lot of machinery from this uh, this operation if we're trying to plant say high value forages or cover crops we don't have to have tillage equipment or um, you know planting equipment because we have an animal that will do a pretty decent job at doing both if we just manage its uh, its impact properly and that's been the experiment for the last many years that we've been doing this is trying to tweak how do we manage this animal in a way that we can get broader results for other species with it um, and you know we could use the pigs to come back over the same piece of ground and harvest a high value forage but we're getting a much better return by pairing pigs with an herbivore and with an omnivore like a turkey or a chicken. And so all three of those species on a particular piece of ground can really produce some pretty amazing results. Yeah, and, and again, I, I really like what what you're saying there and, and echo the benefit of of looking at, again, when we get back to land per acre being such a premium and, and the, the cost associated with that, when you can have um, multi-species crossing the same piece of land within a same growing cycle, and it be mutually beneficial versus mutually destructive. Uh, I think that just 
it really just opens the door for a lot of, of scalability and a lot of growth in that area. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, um, I know you talked about. Uh, I know you're fair to finish, so obviously uh, having boars on on farm. How many fa- uh, how many sows do you normally keep in rotation in a year? Um, it's been going up every year for the last four to five years. Um, right now, we have 160 plus or minus sows. Um, we'll probably be up around 200 or so by the end of this year, and we'll just kind of see where it where it goes from there. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that's a lot of management. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. So, uh, do you farrow all year long, or or do you do you just keep it in the warm months? How do you how do you manage that? Uh, we farrow year round. So the way that we manage the sow herd is it's not all 160 in one group. Mm. Um, we have autonomous, homogeneous groups of sows that are anywhere from 15 to 30 animals in a group and so they are ones that were selected as potential replacement gilts together they were grown out you know and then sorted out at um you know 225 250 pounds um you know into a smaller group and that's our development group and then you know bred and we see how they do as first time gilts but that group of sows of you know 15 to 30 head they will always be together um, until they are retired, um, you know, AKA called, right. yeah. um, and they are independent of every other group on the farm. And so by having, you know, right now we have seven groups like that, um, that gives us a very uh, fine tuned level of control that we can put boars in this group and we can pull them out and then put them into another group. And so the way we have it set up right now, we are farrowing, weaning, and breeding different groups of sows every month. Mm. So, you know, around about the first week of the month, we know, you know, group seven is coming into their farrowing window. So we are beginning to orient our our actions with that group a little bit more intensively because they're about to farrow. Um, whereas the ones that are the ones that are being bred or just gestating, you know, they're pretty low, low key. And uh, so that, that allows us to have a continual supply of piglets rather than just having a shotgun approach um, you know, where they're just being bred at random and farrowing at random and you hope you can go collect up pigs when you need them. Um, it, you know, Despite it being in the woods and on the pasture in a very spread out operation, we do try to have a very high level of management with each group of animals. Yeah, yeah. What about overwintering when it comes to farrowing? Do you do you have shelters? Do you still let them farrow on pasture? We've done a little bit of both. Uh, for a lot of years, we used uh, a farrowing shelter that we have out on, on pasture, um, and that actually worked really well in cold weather. Uh, you know, we were talking earlier about the kind of winters we've had for the last two, three years where it has not been cold and snowy it's been 35 degrees and raining yeah and that's actually been a much bigger challenge for us than the cold and snow and so this winter is the first year that we've actually um, established a farrowing facility where we will bring a group of sows out of the field about a week before they farrow and they are going into a farrowing barn um, where it's you know loose housing they're still together as a group and they actually farrow together as a group um, and we're farrowing under roof 
as opposed to trying to use shelters out in the field and dealing with the mud. Yeah. And the, I would say that's been a lot. We've had a, a noticeable improvement in mortality and just the stress that I think it's putting on uh, both the animals and us uh, because it's, it's, it's not the most pleasant experience to be dealing with mud and water and <clears throat> all the, the joys of 35 degree rain. Right. Um, on a continual basis all exactly. winter long. Nonsense. So that was kind of a big step up for us, though. You know, bringing in a building or retrofitting this, this barn to do this in. Um, and we had the scale where we could justify that cost. And I, I would say we're now two or three months into doing it there. And I would say it, it certainly was the right move for us to make it this time. Yeah, excellent. Excellent. So uh, back up just for a second, if we could. So we're talking about these autonomous sow families that you have, which I think is an incredible idea. So I assume you have uh, in some centralized location uh, your your boar grouping uh, that you then introduce to these families as as need be. So do you have the boars uh, completely separated at all times and just introduce them? And how many do you introduce to the family at each time? Yeah, boar management's an, always an interesting conversation to have. Um, we actually, so uh, just to back up a little bit on it, there's been some research done on the number of boars that you use when you're covering sows, um, and then also just needing redundancy, um, that we run our boars in pairs. So we never, <clears throat> almost never have a single boar covering one of these sets. It's always two. And we found that if you raise the boars up together from when they're they're young there's not a lot of competition between them they don't fight with each other they're they're pretty chill as opposed to if you took older mature boars and put them together it's going to be death match kind of thing yeah and yeah. so we have uh we have three sets of breeding boars um so there's two in set one and two and then the third set actually has three boars in it and what we do because we're breeding every month we know that, say, the, say these boars have been with set one for the last month to six weeks, we then will pull them out of set one and then put them into the next set that needs to get bred. So let's say set two. And you know, by the time they're done breeding set two, we need boars again for set three or so on and so on. Yeah. So these, these pairs of boars are always with a set of sows but they're always coming out uh, before they farrow or you know, when we pull them out. And then they're always shifting directly over to the next set that needs to be bred. So yeah. we're never, we're never taking our boars and putting them in isolation somewhere yeah. um, you know, to just hang out. We always have a place for them and a, and a need for them. And uh, it's really interesting to see how that changes the psychology of the boars themselves. Um, I, I have never had one of our boars even get remotely aggressive with me. They are, they are just kitty cats because I think they are very content that they're always with yeah. ladies. Yeah. I mean, that, um, that's fantastic. I mean, it's yeah, in my mind, I'm thinking what's the easiest way to identify the boars on your farm with well, the ones with the perpetual smile on their face, because they, that's right. as you said, they're yeah. not being isolated. It's, it's funny. Our older boars that are used to how we handle them 
um, when we bring the trailer in to load them up and move them to another set, yeah. um, you know, we've had boars that we bring the trailer in, we open up the gates, and they jump right on, and they right. start chopping their mouth and foaming in there. Yeah, high-fiving <laughs> each other. On, <laughs> yeah, they know they're going on a short ride to a, to a new place. Exactly. Introducing to the ladies, yeah. That's awesome. So, yeah, I mean, that, that obviously takes care of the, the, the question of concern that, that I've had is just – you know, having that many boars isolated, you know, if they're if they're put on a shelf for a couple months, then you know, what's their temperament like? But no, I love that setup where they're they're always in need and they're always rotating through. Uh, that like definitely. right. So when you introduce uh, your boar stock, do you do you keep your do you get your boar stock from your own genetics? Are you introducing new genetics through your boars on a regular basis? How are you handling that? No, we're running a closed herd, so yeah. we're okay. developing boars from our own genetic pool. And, you know, I think we're at a scale where, um, you know, having having too much of a line breeding issue has not been a problem because um, we know that if we raise up some replacement borlings from, um, you know, an even-numbered set, we will have no issue using them on odd-numbered sets and, uh, and vice versa. Yeah. All right. Excellent. Um, well, let's transition, if we could, a little bit to your pasture process. Uh, if you wouldn't mind, I know you use a rotational process. I know you use uh, uh, Premier One uh, uh, hog netting. But uh, if you could just step us through your, your rotational process, what, what you do to move overseeding those type of steps. Right. Um, so it's going to be different with feeder pigs to sows, so I'll, I'll kind of tackle each one. Um, the, the broader principles that are in play, is we are timing the movement of a group of pigs based on their disturbance of the ground and not um, you know saying we're going to keep them here until this feeder is empty or until we feel like moving them again. Um, the goal is when we see a, a X level of disturbance on the ground, that's what will trigger our movement evolution. And so in the winter, it might be a little bit longer that they're on a spot of ground if it's frozen and we've got, you know, round bales of hay for them to have a nest in and, and so on. Um, and in the summer, it might be a lot shorter, especially if it's, if it's wet. So what we're looking for is that the paddock they're in has been uh, tilled up to a, a pretty good extent, but not recompacted. And so you'll see, you know, the ground is kind of fluffed up and rough and there's loose dirt around and it hasn't been, retrod back into hard pan at that and typically you know, we've we've figured out how to manipulate the size of our paddocks and the number of animals that are in that paddock so that this happens around five to seven days typically hmm. and when the paddock is in that condition the soil basically has been prepped because we're also using the animal as a as a ground prep tool um, that's when we will go in and overseed the paddock. And, you know, if it's in the woods, we're primarily using cool weather cover crop stuff like uh, rye, barley, or oats. Um, if it's on the pasture with our, our feeder pigs, it'll be uh, more contingent on the time of year that it is. And, you know, if we're trying to get a high-value forage um, out of this particular rotation. So, like, right now we're still doing barley. But, you know, starting in probably May, we start doing more high-value stuff like forage sorghum, uh, pearl millet, you know, other kinds of uh, fast-growing, high-energy forages that we can use for the herbivores. Um, so we feed the paddock. 
uh, say on day six, and then we are going to move that set of pigs on day seven or eight or maybe even nine. Um, so we're using the pigs to till the ground. We go in and throw the seed around. The pigs are then going to re-till the ground because they're sniffing around for the seeds that you just threw down. And as, as long as it's a small seed, they're not going to eat a noticeable amount of it. Um, you know, if you're trying to use something like corn, then it, it's going to be a problem. They're yeah. going to find that and, and, and eat it. And then the pigs move on, you know, to their next paddock. And that that spot is left idle for up to three, three four months in some cases. So we're allowing a lot of rest period between this uh, intensive disturbance that the pigs will put on a particular piece of ground before we bring them back around uh, because we're not trying to destroy the, the pasture base that we have there. We're trying to just till it and simulate it and get another, uh, another crop going that can either be harvested by an herbivore or by the pigs the next time they come back through. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that obviously promotes, like you said, in Virginia and in our area, erosion is always a concern because of the topography so you're 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 minimizing as much erosion potential as possible. Right. Yeah. Excellent. All right. Um, well, let's talk briefly about because I want to get into the business side of this uh, before I uh, have to let you go here. But let's talk briefly about your feed uh, setup. I, I've I've seen uh, several videos of of how you you guys are handling your feed. I know there's a kind of a mixture of conventional and then uh, even some some waste or some byproduct from from other agricultural methods. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, feed is one of those one of those things that uh, is one of the biggest cost areas with hogs, as anyone will, will know who's listening to this. Um, it's also an area that uh, you can reduce that cost with scale. And so it's not worth grinding your own feed if you're doing 10 pigs a year. But if you are doing 1,000 pigs a year, it certainly is something worth looking at uh, because it's a lot cheaper to source those bulk grains and it's definitely cheaper when you buy them by the truck trailer load. And so we got into doing our own feed um, probably four years ago uh, by picking up a, a grinder mixer at an auction uh, at a pretty good price and that's kind of what launched us into doing it. And then beginning to establish relationships with our neighbors to uh, get grains as local as we can because that is one of the uh, links that is still broken in this production model is the nutrient cycle that we have not, you know, most of us at least who are doing pasture pigs have not closed that uh, nutrient cycle of the waste being produced by our pigs and the ground that the crops are being grown in. And so we're slowly working our way towards getting that closed by working with local producers. So we buy all of our barley local uh, this year, all of our corn is going to be grown locally, and I'm hoping to get to the point where all of our compost from the farrowing facility is now going to go to that ground um, where the corn is grown, and you'll slowly start closing this nutrient uh, cycle. But also, <clears throat> another reason that we got into it was wanting to utilize waste feed, you know, something that is in the news a lot, you know, how much food is wasted and uh, you're just thrown in the landfills and, and what a tragedy it is and what should we do about it. Not very often, though, is uh, the solution of using an animal to recover the value out of that food something that is really talked about. 
But, you know, pigs, being an omnivore, as we all know, will eat just about anything and uh, are more than happy to eat, you know, food that you and I would not want to eat or that has been discarded from, um, you know, an, an industrial processing uh, center. And so what we've been uh, what we've been able to do is establish relationships with um, Apple packing uh, facilities in the local area as they are sorting through the apples uh, from really July even to right now. They're you know, pulling these bins out of coolers and packaging up the five-pound bags of apples that are sold at the store. There's quite a few that are rejected from those bins and thrown away and just thrown into the woods. And uh, so we've been able to get those waste apples directly from a packing shed. They're not very nutritional, but they are very filling. And so it's a good product to use for sows, especially gestating sows that don't have a high nutritional requirement for their diet at that at that time, but they do really love to have a full belly. And so we can, uh, you know, for the cost of one pound of, of ration feed, we could throw that sow 10 pounds of apples. And so you know, we can cut back her ration feed by a pound or two and give her five or six pounds of apples, and she's a much happier sow all day with this with this full belly of uh, of apples. Yeah, I mean, so, I, yeah, that's that's a very interesting concept. I I really like that and, and love to explore that more. Yeah. So, yeah. so we got to be careful not to wash out their nutritional requirements and you know only feed them apples, but it's a really good tool for you know I call it a, a sow contentment mm-hmm. uh, element that uh, you know they're they're happy and they're they're not fussing at the fence and crying every time we drive by because they're hungry. Um, the other thing that we're able to do is get waste peanuts from uh, a peanut mill in North Carolina, you know, that is packaging, you know, all types of, of peanut products. Um, a lot of peanuts actually fall out of the machine as it's being processed through and are just swept up from the floor when they clean out, you know, from a particular run or, some you know idiot on the line when they're mixing up trail mix pulled the wrong lever on the ingredients and it was all screwed up and so all the trail mix is thrown away. Um, we're able to get tractor trailer loads of peanuts from this facility on on a monthly basis that otherwise would be you know landfilled or disposed of some other way. And that's by combining these sources for different types of waste products, whether it's the apples or it's the peanuts, or even now we're starting to use um, soy meal, soybean meal instead of using whole soybeans uh, because of the fat in our rations being made up with peanuts. And so we can go to the high protein soy meal, which is also technically a waste product. Uh, we can start cutting down this cost on what it, what it costs us to keep a sow for a year or to grow out a feeder pig. And, you know, if you can save you know, $50 a sow on feed, that makes a big difference when you're talking about, um, you know, 100 sows or, or 200 sows or, you know, hundreds of, of feeder pigs. Those costs really start to add up to a lot of savings when you look at it in the snapshot of a, of a yearly financial uh, outlook. And so that this has saved us probably about 30 to 40% on our feed as opposed to just you know, getting our feed from Tractor Supply or, you know, Southern States or anywhere else that you would uh, that you would find pig feed. And it's, it's also worked really well as 
a marketing tool to address this waste issue. Uh, saying you know, we can say to our our customers, hey, waste food is a is an issue. There's a lot of food being thrown away, but we can help solve this problem with this wonderful animal called a pig that loves to eat all these waste foods. And by the way, it also turns it into some pretty delicious pork chops and bacon. Yeah, that, that that's that's incredible. I mean, I, I love I love that hook there at the end, like you said, of of, of allowing some discussion, encouraging some discussion on. Uh, waste streams. So it ties back into your marketing. It ties back into the value add of of what you're doing with your business there to get people more interested in your product. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, I've got, my goodness, I wanted to transition into the business side of of your operation and I've got like seven points here, but I'm not going to keep you for another 40 minutes to to go through. So I'm going (laughs) to, I'm going to hit the high spots here. So, um, we can go lightning around. There you go. All right. So uh, one thing I've, I've, you've mentioned already in our podcast and I've seen in some other discussions, um, uh, and, and, and i got to word this right because I don't want it to make this sound like this is any any way negative, but you are kind of, you have the potential to become the poster child of veterans transitioning into farming. And that really is a trend that's taking off right now. And I mean that in the most positive way I can mean that. Talk about that a little bit, because I know you you, you, you kind of hold that dear to your heart. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know about being a, you know, a front man or a poster child, but you know, certainly uh, take it as a compliment. Um, there, there is a large community of guys and girls that have, either come out of the military or transitioning out of the military who are looking for something to, to really fill that, um, you know, we'll say fill that void of purpose that a lot of times is created when you leave something like the military. And, you know, for, for folks who have not been in the military, it's, it's a hard thing to really um, relate to or maybe, you know, uh, experience but you know when you are in the military you're in this community of like-minded people um you know it's still a diverse group of people and you have lots of different personalities and you have conflict to deal with um it's not a bunch of, of robots but you are all there to do a specific thing and for the most part it is a noble thing and everyone is trying to be better for themselves and to accomplish a mission and that a lot of times can be lacking when you either get out or retire. And for a lot of folks, they look at agriculture, especially the, the farm to table or local food movement, and they feel this pull of a renewed sense of, of purpose, of challenge, of a place to grow, um, and really, in a way, test yourself on something new that maybe, you know, you're not, uh, not so sure about accomplishing, but it you know it gives you that that challenge of something new every day, managing um, you know diverse scenarios, uh, having you know an element of risk. Obviously, not as risky as bullets being shot at you, but you know, um, you know when you when you're loading a group of pigs onto a trailer, that will get your adrenaline going. <laughs> at that time. Yeah, yeah, it seems very challenging for sure. Yeah, so you're, you're seeing this, this community of folks that are coming out of the military, moving over to ag, um, and they're, they are feeling this sense of, of purpose again that may have 
they, they may have lost along the way. And, you know, for me, um, that's something that I, I really feel strongly about. I relate to a lot of these guys and girls when they come out to the farm because, you know, we've all got boot camp stories and, you know, stories about in the suck and all that. Um, and it's, it's a neat community that is built on a, a pre kind of a pre-established camaraderie of we've all also had a similar experience in the past and we have this, this uh, shared journey of moving into a new mission uh, and a new set of experiences in tackling uh, this next kind of, uh, you know, big idea, this big mission of how do we solve the, the agricultural crisis, really, that is confronting the American farm community? Yeah, yeah, fantastic. I love it. Yeah, and, and we have, uh, uh, I'm fortunate enough to, to rub shoulders with several uh, guys here in West Virginia doing the exact same thing, veterans that have served have come back and are, are building some, some really successful farms, a small size or in some larger, but it, it's really yeah. neat to see that transition. And it, like you said, it makes sense. The challenge, the uh, everyday something's new. It just really seems to fit that model. Our, our state government's even embraced it with uh, some local nonprofits and, and they've got, uh, we've got veterans learning how to raise uh, different crops. One in particular is uh, lavender on these strip mines in southern West Virginia where it's, you know, it's, it's all rocky soil now and, and lavender loves a Mediterranean-style rocky soil. So it's really neat to see, hey, taking land that somebody feels is an actual eyesore, turning that into something that can produce, but at the same time giving veterans an opportunity and a purpose and a job. It's just, it's just really neat to see all that come together. Yeah, well, you know, in the veteran community, um, you know, we joke around that we're, we're all very acquainted with suffering. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, we look at something like a, you know, a mine like that, and instead of seeing it as this huge insurmountable obstacle, you know, the, the attitude is more like, I can, I can do this, you know, I, I can take this on. Yeah, yeah. Well, for a lot of guys, it's kind of funny. The joke was, well, this is, kind of looks like Iraq now, so it's really not that much of a difference. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I've seen this terrain before. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But awesome. Well, man, yeah, I, I've, I love that, and I totally respect uh, respect that whole position and respect any insight that you give other veterans into doing that transition because I think that's that's just an awesome way to provide for men and women that have done their service for our country. So that's 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 just incredible. All right. Yeah, I mean, and there's I'll just tag on the end there. Mm-hmm. You know, for for a lot of guys, there's certainly an element of healing involved with it yeah. um, you know I was fortunate in my experience that I never had to see a lot of the trauma or experience the trauma that a lot of guys have either through you know uh, just horrific injuries to themselves or to mm-hmm. their bodies um, but there there is certainly a an element of just peace and healing that a lot of these guys experience and and really need that farming can give them yeah excellent well said well, I'm going to wrap up with with one last point here, and then um, um, then we'll I'll, like I said, I'll let you go. I know you got stuff to do on farm today, but um, so your life experience that you've gone through with the Marines at Polyface, your your pre farming days, your your farming days as a kid, and of course now you're I think you're, you're what eight years, nine years, almost ten years into this. So tell me how that's transitioned or, or prepared you for FarmBuilders.com, which is your website, your business consulting side, and, and give us a little discussion there. Sure. 
Um, I think I've always had a um, kind of a, a teacher's heart for developing ideas and concepts and then sharing it with other people. Um, you know, I think particular to my personality is I like seeing something done well and done in an organized manner and then seeing other people take from it what they will and you know adapt it into to what they're doing at whatever level is appropriate. Uh, but I really enjoy sharing uh, you know, the simplicity and, and success and seeing other people do it as well. And uh, you know that's, that's been just kind of a natural progression of starting our own farm, figuring a lot of things out in the you know the first couple of years, and then kind of hitting a point where you make breakthroughs into production efficiency, and then you know kind of the next stage of a business is pioneering different production models and prototyping things, um, and you know and then just sharing that with with the community out there and seeing what what the response is. Um, when I first started doing this type of stuff, it was first on Facebook three, four years ago, you know, and then started a YouTube channel and that transitioned into people saying, Hey, we want to come see how you are doing this specifically and diving into the real nuts and bolts of an operation. And, you know, that's when we put our first, uh, Pharaoh to finish school out there and put together a curriculum and really dove into what I felt was missing in the educational space was you know the, the actual numbers and hands-on uh, info of a scaled operation um, you know there's a lot of courses out there and um, conceptual type of things which are perfectly fine but you know I was trying to reach out to that person who's looking to do this at a scale supporting a full-time income which is a, a small community inside of an already Right, exactly. Yeah. Uh, you know, are, are these people who are looking to do it full time? And I'm sure we've all heard the statistic from I think it was Rodale that was saying uh, you know 95% of startup farms um, go through failure in three to five years. Mm. And there's a number of reasons for that, but I think a big one is not having concise information on what it takes to actually do these things at scale what the numbers are, what the mindset of ownership needs to be, leadership, all these other things that in order to be successful, you must do. And so we felt that you know, whatever small uh, role we could play in helping that number improve, you know, I, I don't like seeing people uh, fail out of, um, you know, fail for the sake of failing if you decide to leave farming for something else that's perfectly fine but it really is hard for me to see someone destroyed by uh, their their eagerness masking let's say their ignorance of of what it takes or what the actual nuts and bolts are of starting an operation and that really kind of backfilled the start of farm builder and what it became was let's address a very niche crowd. We're not necessarily going after, you know, all the homesteaders in the world or the permaculturalists and, and you know, absolutely nothing wrong with what they're doing. That's just not really the niche that we're, we're going for. Um, if we want to move local food from being a, you know, a thing for the top one, 2% to enjoy into being a more widely recognized and adapted and supported method of agriculture, 
we need to figure out a lot of the details of doing this at scale and replicating that over hundreds and thousands of farms. And that's what we want to do. Um, so, you know, it's a second business on top of what we already do as a fully operational farm. And there's a lot more I would like to do with it, but there's not enough hours in the day. And so it's kind of split time between the two of them right now. Yeah. Oh, I bet. Yeah. That was going to be my next question is, do you ever get any sleep at night? (laughs) (laughs) I I actually have to now. The the days of going four hours of sleep at night and just hammering down three monsters a day, those those days are long. Right. Yeah. I was going to say, do you sleep like a Marine? But yeah, that catches up with you at some point. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, Jordan, I really appreciate your time. I, I want to close out with one uh, last question that I, I'd like to ask everybody, and it's it's kind of a deep philosophical question, but what is your favorite experience about raising pigs on pasture? Um, well, yeah, there, there's several, I guess, favorite experiences. Um, you Probably the one that warms my soul the most is when you have you walk up to a nest in the morning and there's that new litter of like 16, you know, perfect piglets that are all nursing on, you know, the sow and she's grunting contentedly and the sun's just kind of coming up through the, through the trees. Um, you know, that's a, that's a moment that you don't replicate, um, you know, with, with many other experiences. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a little piece of heaven to me yeah. to, to experience that. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Good answer. Good answer. Well, all right. Well, uh, for those that uh, that want to learn more about uh, your your various endeavors, there, where can uh, where can we find you online? Um, certainly on any social media. Um, you know, Farm Builder will will find uh, find what I'm doing. Facebook, Instagram. Uh, don't really do the Twitter game much because that's just kind of turned into the, the shooting gallery of the Wild West. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> YouTube is where I put out a lot of longer format content, so you can just uh, search Farm Builder on YouTube. Um, you can also go to the website, farmbuilder.us, um, and you know, there'll be some info there on the different schools that we offer, um, some of the kind of more consulting stuff that I do a little bit of here and there. Um, and then you can always find us at JNL Green Farm, is what we actually do for a living. Uh, and, you know, and that's where we have you know, all of our, our products, be it beef, pork, or poultry, um, and that stuff that we ship around the country. Excellent. All right. Well, man, I appreciate your time. I, uh, I hope you're able to get back out and, and keep, keep going on what you're doing today and, and have a successful day and dodge some raindrops. I think there's more coming to us here in the next, uh, 24 hours. So hopefully that'll be 48 hours for you so you can get some things done on the next time. So, yep. All right. Well, uh, all right. I'll, I'll talk to you uh, soon, and I appreciate uh, appreciate you coming on the podcast and sharing your information with us. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Take care. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of the Pastured Pig Podcast. To learn more about our podcast or to submit topics or recommend guests for future episodes, visit redtoolhouse.com.